Hi everyone, this is Brant Van Rokel, lead pastor of Christ City Kitsilano, and I want to let you know about a couple of things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us at 5th Avenue Cinema on Burrard Street at 9.30 a.m. We meet every Sunday morning for worship, word, and sacrament, and we'd love for you to join us there. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church Kitsilano is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to hear more about what God has called us to here in Kitsilano, then please reach out to me at brant at christcitychurch.ca or you can visit christcitychurch.ca slash Kitsilano. The scripture reading today is taken from Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have been received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father's for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive our, us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, uh, a belated Happy New Year to all of you guys, by the way. Um, it's a new year and a new time to seek the Lord together, as we've been talking about. Um, but as we begin, I want to invite you to, to pray together with me. God, we come to you this morning. Father, we come to you this morning in the name of Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would grab a hold of our hearts. Lord, that in your gentleness and your mercy and your goodness and your love, that you would draw us towards you. Lord, that you would tenderly um, bring our lives into sweet and good alignment with you and your kingdom. Lord, we pray that where repentance is needed, that you would help us to trust you, to know that turning away from the things that we've held on to is, is good the best thing that we can do is to surrender to you. Lord, where we need encouragement and, and to feel your love and to know your goodness, would you just do that this morning for us by the power of your Holy Spirit and through your word? Uh, God, would you show us and compel us, everyone in this room, that you are the God who longs to be in relationship with us, who has made every provision for us to be in relationship with you, and who delights to care for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was seven years old, uh, my parents did a very farm parent thing to do. They bought me an air rifle. And on that day, I became a terror to my neighborhood. Maybe not a terror exactly, uh, but I did learn a thing or two about marksmanship. 
I began to understand how a U-channel worked and how you align the U-channel with the post and beyond that with the can that you would that you were intending to hit on the fence pole. And I learned to uh, set out to hit what I aimed at as I calibrated all these things and learned the skill of marksmanship. I don't recommend doing that for a kid of seven, by the way, in the city. Uh, probably not a good idea. Um, but I do think that marksmanship is a good parable for January. It's a good parable for January because I think January really, at the beginning of a new year, is a time when we are all lining up our science on the trajectory of life that we're aiming to hit. Trying to focus in on the thing that, that we want to get out of 2024. We want to get happiness. We want to have success. We want to achieve the things that our hearts desire. And we're aiming at things. And yet, as we set our sights on what we're aiming at in 2024, it should come as no surprise that we don't often like to think about it, that we have many obstacles in our way. Not just wind speeds and temperature, but there are lots of things that are in our way and even opposing us to make it difficult to plan to hit the target that we're aiming at. For example, you don't want to hear this this morning, but I'm going to remind you, this is another year where you don't know for sure whether you or your loved ones will live through the year. This is another year where your investments and your security in life could be snatched from you in a moment. This is another year where a couple months from now we could again face a pandemic. This is another year where you could lose your job or flunk your classes or not get into the program that you desire to get into or be diagnosed even with an incurable disease. This is a year even where bitter Enmity could replace what you've come to value as a close friendship, or you could even be alienated from family. This is a year that's full of obstacles. It's not so easy to align the, the life that we have and the trajectory that we want to get the outcome that we desire. And I think it makes us wonder then, as, as we think about all these things, is there some way that we could live such that regardless of what happens this year, our shots won't miss? Is there some way that we could ensure that even in suffering, even in the storms of life, there is a way to live where we'll have success? Don't you want that? I want that. What's that security? Where can that be found? Well, there is a way. It's a way that is totally and completely and only built on Jesus and because of him. See, because Jesus Christ has been born as our Savior, because he has lived, because he has died, because he is raised from the dead as the conqueror of sin and Satan and death, then every life that is built on Jesus is secure. Every life that is built on Jesus is secure, even through the fiercest storms of life. But a life that's not built on him, Jesus himself warns at the end of chapter 7 in Matthew, will perish. So the most important question then for us as we, we line up our lives on the trajectory of life in 2024 is this. Is my life built on Jesus? How is my life built on him? And our week of prayer and fasting 
is all for this one purpose, the time to refocus our lives on Jesus and his kingdom. A time to consider and to recalibrate our hearts. I mean, I've had a lot of fun partying through the holidays. I'm sure you have too. But as the discipline erodes and the indulgence happens, you hit January and you're like, man, I've got to recalibrate something going on in my heart right now. And this is a time to do that. Time to recalibrate our hearts and our lives around Jesus and his kingdom for the coming year. And I want to equip you for that process, for that recalibration. So we're going to aim at this week. But one thing I want to give you this morning is a tool that you can use for the whole week and for the whole year. And the tool is a tool that Jesus himself has given us that we already just read, the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray. It's a tool of recalibration to Jesus and his kingdom. We're going to look at two points as we unpack this prayer. We're going to look at the heart of Christian prayer and what it's meant for, how, how that works on us. We're going to look at the heart of Christian prayer, and we're going to look at the content of Christian prayer. So it looks like it's, a, it's an easy, simple two-pointer sermon, but I've snuck six points into the second point. So, uh, so really, I guess that's seven-point sermon, uh, which is a number of perfection in Scripture. That's good, you know? It's a perfect sermon. Um, but we're going to jump in right away at the heart of Christian prayer. Now, as we look at the Lord's Prayer, what we need to know is that it might be the most famous little bit of writing in the whole of Christianity. It might be. It's so well known, even in sound bites that float around in our culture. It's massive also in its scope, though profoundly simple in its structure and in its content. One scholar wrote about the Lord's Prayer, Frederick Dale Bruner. He said this, The Lord's Prayer stretches from the Father at the beginning to the devil at the end, from heaven to hell, and in between, in six brief petitions, everything important to life. It's a great little summary. It's very massive in scope, simple in content, covering basically everything, which is helpful for us as we realign our lives and pray it and kind of orient ourselves to the Lord. And the structure is very simple. It's just six petitions or requests. But those six petitions can be divided into two halves. First, focusing on our relationship with God and his kingdom. And then second, focusing on our needs in this world bringing our needs and our heart and our needs to God in prayer. And yet none of the words in the prayer, this is very important, none of them, Jesus instructs us, are spoken into the void and into outer space. Rather, this whole prayer is given to us on the basis that we can come to God as our Father in heaven. That it's about a relationship with God. That we can talk to God through Jesus directly and simply and openly and honestly. And in fact, the very first step to aligning ourselves with God and his kingdom is, is to begin to take this on board into our lives and our hearts and to grow, to realize and to practice that we can approach God trustingly as our father through Jesus. And this is why Jesus begins teaching his disciples about prayer, not by talking about the things to pray. He doesn't tell them that. He begins by focusing on the heart of prayer. The heart orientation of coming to God as your father. And in verses 5 to 8, he says this. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners 
that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Interesting that reward is part of prayer. Isn't that interesting? And he goes on, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. I think maybe the most radical thing that Christianity teaches is that the God of the universe is a God of love who through Jesus Christ, the son, adopts us as his children. It's just utterly profound that we come before the God of the universe as our father. What Jesus wants his disciples to recognize is that that means at least two different things. It means we shouldn't pray like hypocrites. And particularly, as he said in these verses, as those people who care more about how we're seen and heard by others in our prayers than about simply coming before God in honesty as his children. Like I remember when I was, um, when I was at seminary, we joined a new church. Heather and I moved to uh, one of the states in the United States and I joined this church and I came there to a prayer meeting. And I remember being paralyzed in the prayer meeting because I, I wanted to pray, but I was so worried about how I sounded before other people. I didn't, I didn't pray. I couldn't get myself to do it. I was just paralyzed in fear of what they would think about me if I said the wrong thing in the wrong way. My heart was like the heart of the hypocrite, not at all looking towards God as father coming honestly and openly and trusting to him, but just caring about how I was perceived in that room. And I'd like to say that that's gone away, but it hasn't. And there's often times as I was preparing for the sermon even where I'm realizing there's still so many times in my life when I, I don't just come to God as a child with openness and honesty to pray before him, but that I'm thinking about how maybe you even, how you perceive me. You see, I think it's probably true that all of us are the hypocrites here in different ways. We all care so much about how people think about us versus just knowing that our father loves us and welcomes us to himself in prayer. So Jesus teaches to come to him, not like the hypocrites, but honestly as father. He also says that we shouldn't pray like Gentiles. I think we can do this in different ways too, but what he's getting at is the way that, that the ancient Gentiles, those who did not follow the God of the Bible, their prayer was different than Christian prayer and that they often would rely on the cadence of the sounds, on the repetition, on the plaintive cries falling on their faces before their gods to try to get their God's attention, to try to say the right thing in the right order to get God to listen to you. If you think back to the Old Testament, the Bible, there's a story about a prophet named Elijah and he prays on Mount Carmel versus the prophet of the Baals, the prophets of the Baals. And what happens is that the prophets of the Baals, they groan and they cut themselves and they cry out and they yell and they scream in the prayers of the Gentiles. And as contrasted with um, the prophet who then comes up and stands and what he does, the prophet of God, is he just prays simply and directly to God. 
and God hears him. I think so often we trust in the wrong thing, in the wrong formula, rather than just coming simply and praying to our Father who already knows our needs before we ask them. So what Jesus begins teaching his disciples here at the very beginning of the Lord's Prayer is that the heart of Christian prayer has a first step. And the first step is to align ourselves rightly to God to know that, that he is our Father. That we are his children and that we are invited through Jesus Christ to approach him with an incredible frankness and openness and honesty. So I want to encourage you, I want to encourage you in this week of prayer and fasting, maybe you've gotten away from this in your own lives. Maybe you've never done it. There's lots of things that keep you from praying to God about your daily needs, whether it's pride or it's fear, whatever it might be. Can I encourage you? Just come to God honestly. Just come to him. Trust that he is your father. If you are a Christian here this morning who's put your faith and your trust in Jesus to save you, he is your father. And he welcomes you. Speak to him honestly. Come before his throne of grace and find help in your time of need. But the next thing Jesus teaches isn't the open and honest relationship with God as Father, but the second part, which is the content of Christian prayer. And that's our second point. Look at it now. As we unpack the Lord's Prayer and the content, what we need to know is that it certainly is a model prayer for us. And there's a reason why we'll say it together, uh, we'll pray it together even this morning, and that Christians have been praying it together or privately for 2,000 years. At the same time, it's not the full expression and the only words that we can pray to God. We don't have to pray just these words. And in fact, a really helpful way to think about the Lord's Prayer is that Jesus is helping us by giving us a structure for all of our prayers. He's giving us categories of things to pray through. Ways of thinking about prayer in relationship with God that are given to us here in this prayer. And notice then how it begins in verse 9. Again, we pray, Our Father in heaven. Our Father. How does the Christian approach the God of the universe in prayer? We address him as Father and we approach him in the name of Jesus, our Savior. It's why Christians often pray, Father, and in the name of Jesus. Trusting that the Holy Spirit that indwells us is interceding for us in our prayers. There's, there's one God in Christianity who is a God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But in our prayers, we come to him, come to the Father, in the name of Jesus, in the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. It's how we pray. It's how Christians pray. And behind that reality is this miracle, the miracle of the gospel, the miracle that Jesus' blood shed on the cross for forgiveness of our sins means that the rift in the relationship between a holy and a righteous, omnipotent God and sinful humanity, that that rift has been reconciled, that the divide has been brought close, that the brokenness in our relationship has been repaired so that now we don't come to a temple to worship God in some place on earth. No, God has made us instead his temple. 
And he dwells within us by his spirit. And we, the church, filled with the spirit, are his children. In fact, the Holy Spirit within us is a sign that we are his children. Galatians 4, 6 says this, that God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It's glorious. Maybe it's not glorious to you yet because you don't know what Abba means. But Abba is a word that was used at ancient times in Aramaic that was a familiar word to refer to one's father. It's like calling God, Dad. The Christian has the right to approach the God of the universe through Jesus by his spirit and to call him Dad. Isn't that incredible? I think we, we often hesitate to even use that language in our prayers. But that's biblical and good language. To come before the God of the universe, to call him dad, and to talk to him about our daily lives. The other religions in this world, they don't do this. They might pray to a God or to gods and recognize power and sovereignty and, and dominion, but they don't invite their followers to come to them as dad. And this is the profound privilege of the Christian through Jesus Christ. And because of that, we, do, we go to God, not just to a God, but to our Father who, know, who we know loves us and cares for us. And we know that he loves us and cares for us because he has already sent his son to die for our sins so we can be confident that this Father does know our needs and will meet all of our needs until the day that we are with him forever when he returns. So first thing, as we look at the Lord's Prayer, is just a profound way that begins to come to God, to pray to him as Father. But the second thing that we need to learn here is what to pray to this Father. And Jesus gives us six petitions to, to walk through and to learn about how to pray. And the first three are all about aligning the whole of our lives to God and to his eternal kingdom, to his purposes for the world and for us and for all that that is. Um, and the way I would illustrate this is, is this way. I, I was thinking uh, um, this week about the way that I love music and I also love instruments. There's nothing more wonderful than a beautifully crafted instrument. I have a friend who um, makes violins. And this friend, when he makes violins, he makes very high quality, very expensive violins. Um, but he walked me through his shop one time and he showed me the process of, of making the violin so that even as he's crafting it and designing it, he's designing it so that when the strings vibrate, the whole instrument is perfectly tuned to resonate in various harmonies with the strings themselves. So what he does is, is he works on it and design it and then Afterwards, as he's building it, he lovingly takes his chisel and he moves shaving after shaving carefully to get it just right. So that when this violin is played, it resonates and erupts in this beauty that is compelling. And I think that these first three petitions that we have in the Lord's Prayer, I think they're like God's chisel. I think they're like his chisel, lovingly working on us so that the whole of our lives is being brought into tune and resonates with the song of eternity. It's bringing us into tune with God. And you can see that because verse 9 begins with the words, Hallowed be your name. To pray for God's name to be hallowed means to pray for God's name to be seen and to be treated 
as holy. That's what hallowed means. And where do we want God's name to be seen and treated as holy? Well, everywhere. So we can pray this word. We can pray it and apply it to all areas of our lives. In my life, in your life, in the city and beyond, praying for God's name to be hallowed, to be treated as holy. But what does holy mean? And it's a more important question. Well, holy things are things that have been set apart for God's purposes. And in the ancient temple of God in Jerusalem, even the shovel that was dedicated to scoop the ashes from the altar was considered holy because it was dedicated to God. It was set apart for his service. So when we pray, hallowed be your name, praying God, let your name be holy. We're praying that God's name and everything that's associated with God's name would all increasingly be devoted to him, lived out for him in service of his glory, of his honor and his praise. So I often pray the Lord's Prayer like I've been talking about here, where, where I'll pray one line at a time, and then I'll pray and apply that to all the different areas of my life and your life and the city. And I will confess to you that when I pray, hallowed be your name, it's the one line I think more than any other that leads me to my knees very quickly in repentance. Because I consider how I am a child of God, how he's my father, and yet there's so many areas of my life where I'm not honoring his name as holy, where I've not hallowed him, where my life doesn't reflect his worth and his glory in obedience to him. And yet this line also leads me to adoration because as I pray, I'm reminded of his love for me, of the forgiveness that I have through Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of his worth, of his glory, of his goodness, and that he is worthy of all of my obedience and all of my worship. And it leads me to start praying more and more for all of you, for all of me, that all of our lives would reflect his glory and his worth in every way. And so this week, as we pray the Lord's Prayer together, as we work through and align our lives with the Lord, let me encourage you to pray like this to start to pray for God's name to be hallowed in every area in your life as well. And the next two petitions, they're, they're similar in their focus. The second and the third are in verse 10, and we'll look at them together. And there Jesus tells us to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, I, I don't think you can pray this prayer in open-hearted honesty before God and not begin to align your life to him. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. This is a prayer of surrender to God. God's will and your life are often in conflict. It's true in my life. But to pray your kingdom come and your will be done is to come to God as his child, trusting that obedience to God's will will lead us to what is truly good and beautiful and true. And trusting and admitting that disobedience to his will won't be good for us. It's to surrender before a loving father, to look to him for his will rather than ours. So I want to invite you again in this line to pray God's will this week, this year, and always to be done and for his kingdom to come in every area of our lives. 
for his will and his kingdom to be, come, to, to, to be done in this church, in this city, so that his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. Because one day soon, the reality is that Jesus will return. And all creation will cry out the words from Revelation, which are these, Revelation 11. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And only what is in alignment today with God's kingdom will endure to the end. So I invite you to join in praying this with me. So the first three petitions are all about alignment with God and his kingdom purposes. But the next three petitions, they turn toward us and to our human needs in relationship with God. I want you to look at the fourth petition in verse 11. Jesus instructs us, pray, give us this day our daily bread. Now, we live in modern times. And so we're a couple of degrees of separation removed from the existential reality of farming and daily bread to live. Right? We don't think about a good harvest and how we depend on the good harvest so that we have something to eat. Right? Because if we have a bad harvest, that's okay. Somebody else in the world has had a good harvest and we can buy their bread at Superstore. Right? There's, there's a way that we're removed from this existential reality. And yet, no matter of which Superstore you go to or where you do your shopping, um, all of us still are dependent upon God. We live dependent upon him. For everything, even if we've forgotten it this morning. Our lives exist at his command. Our health exists by his hand. And we all need shelter and clothing and jobs and food from God. And most of all, we need Jesus Christ, the bread of life, the fountain of living water, to have true and lasting life. We are dependent creatures upon God. We're dependent, though we often don't realize it. I'm praying, give us this day our daily bread reminds us of our dependence, draws us to God. But I want to say something further than that, because Christ City, I think that one of the greatest gifts God can give us is to give us less than we think that we need. I think one of the greatest gifts that he gives us is to give us less than we think we need, because it's only in our lack that we learn dependence upon him. And this is actually what God did in love for the Israelites. And actually what's going on in these words, give us this day our daily bread. Because the words daily bread, they're a reference, they're a reference to the daily bread called manna that God gave Israel in the wilderness between Egypt and the promised land. But because God loved his children, he didn't give them in the wilderness a bakery. Because he loved them, He gave them daily bread. He gave them daily bread to teach them that what they truly needed was to learn to rely upon him day by day in thankful, contented dependence. So friends, whether we have a lot or a little this morning, this prayer for daily bread is for you. Because when we pray it, what it does is it works on us and it reorients us to our dependence on God for everything. And as we remember that, as we think through it, it confronts us. Praying for daily bread confronts greed. It confronts greed because we sit there like, I want all these things just for me. And then we come to scripture, we read daily bread. 
the kingdom of God, his will, his name being hallowed. And we remember it's not just about my greed. It's not about my greed at all. It's about him. Confronts greed. It confronts the the discontent and the complaints in our heart that says, God, why don't I have what I want? And it moves us to trust God as a father who loves us and provides all that we need. And he even teaches us, I think, to start to look to what God is doing in our lives when we feel lack. To learn all that he's given, to learn to trust his wisdom and his love for us. To become grateful even in our times of need. And in everything to use all that he's given, not merely for ourselves, but obediently for him and his glory and for his kingdom. Give us this day our daily bread. The next petition, it moves us from daily needs to human relationships. Look at verse 12. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. It's interesting, in the the honor-shame culture of, of Jesus' day, the language of debt was used to talk about um, what goes on when you've wronged someone and you've been forgiven by that person. You need to forgive that person. It's to talk about forgiveness as indebtedness. And it's getting at something important that I think sometimes we miss in our lives. When we do wrong to someone, we incur a debt. A debt that forgiveness bears. For example, if you were to uh, leave this place this morning and scratch my car, and then you're like, oh, Brand, I'm so sorry. Big, long scratch in the car. And, uh, and if, I guess in this world, ICBC doesn't exist. Uh, for, but, but bear with me. So pretend that ICBC doesn't exist for the sake of the illustration. And if I walk up to you and I say, you know what? That's okay. I forgive you. It's okay. The payment for the scratch doesn't go away. I bear it. And in this way, forgiveness is bearing the debt of somebody else. And in forgiveness, as indebtedness, there is a model for us. God is the model. He's the model because God has forgiven the debt of the sin of every person who's turned to Jesus Christ for salvation. And it's a debt that's far more enormous than anything that I'll ever have to forgive among any of you or you'll have to forgive even from me, shockingly. But this is where the realignment of our hearts comes in in our relationships in the Lord's Prayer because God's forgiveness of us is meant to change how we relate to others. This is about being aligned to Jesus' kingdom in our relationships. Because as his children, we are called, we are commanded in Jesus to grow up to be like our father in this world towards others. We're commanded so that we would grow, that just as he has forgiven our debts, we would forgive the debts of others who've sinned against us. And in fact, what you need to know in this realignment process in relationships and in our prayers is that the most severe warnings Jesus gives in the gospel of Matthew are towards people who refuse to forgive those who've wronged them. It's even here in the Lord's Prayer that we haven't read it. The verses immediately following it in verses 14 to 15, Jesus continues and he says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses. Neither will your father forgive your trespasses. See, praying, forgive us our debts, 
as we have forgiven our debtors. I'm realizing I have a different translation here. This is interesting. We read, did we read debts earlier? Debts and debtors? There must be, I'm just, I'm just realizing this now. I think there are two versions in the English Standard Version of the Bible, two, two different copies maybe. Um, they're getting the same idea. Uh, let's go with debts though. <laughs> um, <laughs> same, same idea that's being communicated. Um, but what I want to say here in summary at this point is that praying these words is so good for us. And in fact, it's essential to be praying these words because in praying them, what we're acknowledging is our sin before a holy God and we're remembering through the gospel, through Jesus, how he has loved and forgiven us. I'm like, thank you, Lord. Thank you that you love and you forgive me. But daily remembering that forgiveness and then thinking about our relationship with others then confronts us and challenges us. How are we living the forgiveness we've received outwards to other people? So important. In this way, this prayer works to align us in our relationships to others as God desires. But then moving on, after dealing with our physical needs and our relationships, we come to the last two petitions in the prayer. And these are petitions that reckon with a great tension in the Christian life, a tension that I know you felt, and the tension is this. We are those today who belong to the kingdom of Jesus. He's our savior. He's given us eternal life. His spirit is within us. We have hope for the future that is incredible and hope for today. And yet Jesus himself told us, in this world, you will have trouble. He promised us that. In this world, you will have trouble. He goes on to say, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Here in his attention, though Jesus has risen from the grave, victorious over Satan and sin and death, his victory will only be finally and fully completed on the day that he returns. Until then, as you know, this world is full of suffering. Sin is still here. Sin is even still in us, though it's being slowly defeated. Satan and his deception in this world is still here. Death, as you know well, is still here. I think this is why Jesus taught us to pray in verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Or some translations would say from the evil one. It isn't that God himself is trying to deceive and tempt us. That's a misreading of the prayer. And it's an understandable misreading. We know it's not saying that we got to watch out for God because sometimes he'll tempt us if we don't ask him not to. We know that's not what it's saying because in James 1, 13 to 14, we read, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. So I don't think Jesus is warning us or telling us to pray that God wouldn't just tempt us in some devious way to make us waylaid. No, I think what he's doing is this. When Jesus says to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, he's reminding us that in this world, we will have trouble. But that through every difficulty, we can endure as we turn to our loving father in prayer to help us through it. He's teaching us a heart posture in suffering and the difficulty of the life, of this life. To come to our Father, to turn to him in our needs, for him to help us, the suffering that we face. And I think in this way, the Lord's Prayer in these last lines, it reorients us to our expectations in this world. See, friends, 
I think a lot of Christians are, are troubled and find it difficult to go through life because they get it wrong about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And they conclude that being a follower of Jesus means no suffering anymore. But that's not the case. And the Apostle Paul, who suffered very much as a servant of Jesus in this world, he even taught the Christian converts that he met. And one time in particular, just after he was in a crowd and they threw stones at him to the point where they thought that he was dead and he gets up and these disciples come around him, he teaches these disciples that suffering was part of our lives as Christians. In Acts 14, 22, right after this crowd throws the stones at him, we read this, but Paul was strengthening the souls of the disciples. He was encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, through much difficulty, through hardship, through suffering, we must enter the kingdom of God. They're like, Paul, why are you stoned to death? Isn't Jesus raised from the dead? He's like, well, no, let me tell you something. Following Jesus is often hard. The suffering hasn't gone away and won't go away until he returns. And yet because of Jesus' victory over Satan and sin and death, by his resurrection, we can be confident that God will never remove the best things in life from us. His love, his church, relationship with him by his spirit, those things are never going away from the Christian. Jesus has promised, I will never leave you or forsake you no matter what happens. That can never be taken away from the Christian. More than that, he's promised to use even the bad things that happen in life for our good. Romans 8.28 says that for those who love God and have been called according to his purpose, God uses all things for good. God is a God who takes even the worst bad things that happen in our lives and uses them for good for us through Jesus our Savior. And more than that, he promises that for everyone who loves him, the best is yet to come when he returns. That we will endure, that we will conquer, that we will reign with Jesus forever in a world where sin and Satan and death are gone forever. So Christ said, when we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We're praying a prayer that entrusts ourselves existentially, completely to our Father. Trusting him to help us to endure when it's hard. And the Apostle Peter says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. It's 1 Peter 5, 10 to 11. So Christ City, of all that will be done in 2024, it is only what is done in the name of Jesus and for his kingdom that will last. So I want to ask this January, where is the trajectory of your life aimed? Will sudden hardship or disaster shipwreck you? Or have you rooted your life in the gospel of Jesus, holding fast the love of God for you through Jesus? Have you aligned your life with him and his kingdom, seeking first above everything else in your life, his glory, his kingdom, his holy name, so that when trials come, you will be victorious in Jesus, your Savior. So let's seek him together.
Can I pray? Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And we come to you trusting in your love for us. You are a good father. And Lord, even as you correct us, even as you rebuke us, even as you draw us towards you and away from other things, Lord, we can trust that all that you do, you do in great love and tender affection for us. Not so that we would have luck, but that we would have abundance. More than we need, all that we need in Jesus. God, I pray that you would work on us this morning, that you would lead us now to respond and worship with joyful hearts as we praise you, as we surrender our lives increasingly to you for your glory, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.